We live in a crooked world that we cannot understand and we cannot fix. Some of you have heard that recently in evening sermons in Sunday school. Just a few moments ago, we read this verse, Ecclesiastes 7.13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And Paul says to the Philippians, you live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And let us be clear that that description could in fact be said of any and of every generation. Jesus lived a few years before this, and he said of his generation that it is an evil, a faithless, a twisted generation in which he lived. It could be said of any generation, and let us be careful as well, not to exempt ourselves proudly and foolishly from the elements, the aspects, the essential components of crookedness that are present in each one of us, that are at work within each one of us as well. In fact, what Paul has done here, and he does this, and I'll point this out throughout this passage, he, he isn't inventing terms in this passage. He's just picking up terms out of the Old Testament in this passage, and that includes this idea of being crooked and twisted. It comes out of the Old Testament, but guess what? It's not applied directly in the Old Testament to the nations, to the people who are around. Instead, it's Moses' descriptor of Israel of Israel, who, though separated by God, though redeemed and rescued by God, had in fact become what they saw around them. This is it, Deuteronomy 32.5 is part of what Paul's thinking about as he writes this section to the Philippians. This is what it says. They, and that is the Israelites, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked, and twisted generation. So lest we think that the redeemed people of God aren't actually crooked and twisted like the generation out there, that's exactly the warning that Moses said to Israel. You were, in fact, the redeemed people of God and you have become crooked and twisted. So let us not separate ourselves from this. We live in a crooked world, a world that is bent and twisted by sin a world that is warped. Things do not go the way they should in this world. They do not flow the way they should. We do not get along the way we should. We do not do the things we know to be the right things to do. Christians, be very, very careful and very cautious about expecting straightness and smoothness and ease in your own life, in your families, in the church, in the world. Be very careful not to expect that because if you do, you will be very frustrated and very disappointed with your life. We live in the midst of crooked, 
and twisted generation, and so did the Philippians. So did they. And when you have that kind of a world around you, there are particular temptations and tendencies associated with this idea of crookedness of which we must be made aware. We have to know what crookedness could do to us. What are the tendencies against which we must be warned? We have to be on guard against these things or those things, those temptations that come out of life in a crooked world will in fact consume us. And that is exactly what Moses said happened to Israel. They were consumed by the culture that was around them and thus they became crooked themselves. And being consumed by things is the same thing that happened to Cain as well early in scripture. So I want to highlight today, and I think Paul highlights here, three temptations, three things that can take place in us that are part of living in a crooked world. One of these is stated plainly. The other two are implied. Paul kind of builds them one upon the other. I'm going to flatten them out a little bit here so that we can take a look at them clearly. So here, here are the temptations that Paul's addressing that perhaps particularly the Philippians are facing but would face us as well. The first one is the most obvious because it is the verse that starts out our passage today. Here's the temptation. The temptation is that we do what Paul says. We grumble and we dispute with one another. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing because when you live in a crooked world, the temptation to be a grumbler is high. And Paul says you need to be warned about that. And we can use any of the substitute terms that you'd like to, mumbling and complaining and arguing when things do not go our way, when we do not get our way, or when simply we have to go out of our way because something is not allowing us to go straight. The road in our lives has become crooked. Grumbling is the result of that. Here's the thing about grumbling. Grumbling can seem so minor, right? In the big scheme of things, in the big scheme of sins that exist in the world, grumbling seems like, well, you know, everybody grumbles. It's just a crooked world. What else are you going to do? It can seem so insignificant. It can, in fact, seem so appropriate. Like, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, who, who wouldn't grumble in a situation like this? that we justify it, that we justify that that's what we're doing because after all, that's crooked and I should grumble about the fact that this thing is crooked. And I think this is particularly a temptation for those of us who believe in a sovereign and good and almighty God. If you live in a world of random chance and chaos, well, whether something is crooked or straight is simply a matter of randomness. It's simply a matter of chance of what took place. But if you believe in an almighty God who is good, then it troubles you. Because you think to yourself, things could be different. They could be made straighter than they are. So 
grumbling exists in the world as a whole, but I think it's particularly for those of us who are in Christ or, or Israel to have this temptation to grumbling. It is, in fact, no small thing. As I said, Paul laces the passage that we're looking at today with either direct references or allusions to Israel in the Old Testament. And it begins right here on the front of your bulletin, uh, and I'm going to reference each one of the passages that are printed on the front of your bulletin. I included in the middle there Exodus 16.2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel did not start their sinning by building the golden calf. That wasn't where it started. It started with grumbling. It led to other things, but the root, the seed of all of it, was this dissatisfaction, this lack of contentment that is, in fact, an expression of distrust and displeasure. Now, on the one hand, it can be distrust and displeasure with the leaders. But as is made very clear in the Exodus passage, it's not just distrust and displeasure with Moses and with Aaron. In fact, what they are expressing is their distrust and their displeasure with God. Because God had appointed them to that position. And Israel is then not content with the providential care of God. Effectively, what happens when you grumble is you are saying, God, I don't care for the way that you're running things. I don't care for your providence in this particular situation. And if I were running things, there wouldn't be traffic. If, if maybe somebody else was in charge, Things would go more smoothly in my life. And that kind of attitude then, that kind of understanding of grumbling helps us to then see why it's grumbling followed by disputing. Okay, Because if you've set up that attitude towards God, then it's not long. In fact, it's almost in the same breath where you're complaining about somebody else, where you're grumbling about somebody else, and that turns into disputing and arguing with other people. Grumbling breeds dissension. It breeds fighting with each other and biting at one another. It breeds discord, and that's what Paul has heard about Philippi. Paul's heard about this church, a lot of good things in the life of this church that they've done over the course of the years, but now he's heard that there's this root of grumbling that is taking place in the church, and as a result, there's disunity that's happening in this church. This is a temptation in a crooked world to grumble and to dispute with people. Do not underestimate it. Do not think for one second that you are immune. All you have to do is get out of bed in the morning and hit your toe on a piece of furniture, and you grumble. This got hold of me this week this grumbling and disputing, and several people here know that it got hold of me because I had to write an apology because it got hold of me, this spirit of grumbling and disputing. 
Paul warns us, you live in a crooked world, and you better be aware of the temptation in a crooked world to grumble and to enter into, therefore, disputes and discord with all sorts of people as a result of it. The second temptation, that's the first. The second temptation is implied in the call in verse 15 to be blameless and innocent. Now, in just a moment, we'll get to being blameless and innocent, but the, the, the implication of that, or if you will, the other side of that is that the temptation that exists in this crooked world is to conform. It's to not be blameless and innocent. It is to do the opposite. It, it, it simply stated can sound like this. When everyone else is going crooked, crooked seems straight. When everybody else, in opinions or in what they're doing, are going a certain direction, then that seems straight, regardless of where it is heading. The heart and the mind and the will, perhaps wittingly, perhaps unwittingly, will follow the crowd. Lauren and I were up at the US Open two weeks ago, and we didn't know where we were going. Well, we didn't know where we were, we didn't even know where we were going. We just followed the crowd. We just got in line with everybody else who was there. And in a crooked world, the temptation is, whatever you hear of the values of the world and the practices of the world that are around you, you must recognize the temptation to just follow. Because that's what everybody else is doing. It is the path of least resistance. And what takes place is, in fact, instead of being blameless and innocent and without blemish, we are, in fact, reverse that, corrupted, guilty, and blemished in the world because we've conformed to it, which is what Deuteronomy 32.5 that I read for us earlier said about Israel. It said exactly these words. Paul's not inventing the terms. They have dealt corruptly. They are blemished. Israel looked at the nations who were around them and said, that looks good. That looks like something we could do in our homes, in our families, in our worship. They imitated it, and as a result, they themselves became blemished. Do not, do not overestimate the strength of your will, of your mind, and of your heart in this world. Do not sit here and think that, oh, no, I won't be conformed by the world. I'm tougher than that. I'll be able to see through the lies of the age that are around me. Crookedness has a gravitational pull that is greater than your grip, and it will rip you out. It will take those who are shallow-rooted in their faith, shallow-rooted in their understanding of the Word of God, unpracticed in discerning good from evil, and it'll rip you out of the ground. And we will conform to this world. That's the temptation. Don't grumble and dispute with one another. And secondly, don't conform. The third temp temptation is implied as well. And the third temptation is to give up, to quit, to stop trying to fight and to just yield, just to give into it. It is, after all, easier. It is easier to grumble and it is easier to complain than it is to resist, than it is to work out your salvation, than it is to repent and reconcile with somebody. It is easier just to justify and excuse it 
and then try and quit the fight of working against it. Instead, what Paul says to them is, I don't want you to stop laboring. I want you to stand firm. I want you to strive side by side for the gospel. I want you to treat other people as more important than yourselves, their interests. I want you to obey. I want you to work out your salvation. And Paul says of himself in verse 17, or pardon me, verse 16, that he doesn't want to run in vain. He doesn't want to labor in vain. He doesn't want to give up. In other words, he doesn't want to quit the race. He doesn't want to quit the work that he's got. But his ability not to run or labor in vain is completely tied to how the Philippians run and labor. They've got to do that together so that there won't be any vanity. The temptation as we walk with the Lord year after year, if you're a child who was raised in the faith, this is the temptation as well. The temptation is to coast. The temptation is to run out of steam, to lose your zeal in this. Fight against sin and fight for unity. And so we've got these three temptations that are here given to us. The temptation to be grumbling and disputing, the temptation to conform, and the temptation to quit and give up. That's the warning side of this, but Paul takes each one of those things and he turns it around to the other side. And he gives us a series of instead, do this, don't do that, instead do this, a series of commendations that we have from him and exhortation, a way of saying this is how you ought to live. And if I could borrow the phrase that I used from the book of Ruth, Paul wants to give instructions to the church and this is how you live as a church, as an outpost of shalom in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is a crooked and twisted place in which we live and in the middle of it, God has set you Philippians here to be an outpost of shalom, to be, at least striving to be, a place of harmony, a place wherein hearing from God and hearing from the word of God, we are reoriented in our lives. We get a breath out of crookedness because we hear from the word of God. And it teaches us what is good, what is right, what is true, what the Lord requires of us. It teaches us then the excellent way that is found here. And so, instead of conforming, capitulating to the temptations, then the church is to have a different attitude. And that's what then Paul spells out for them. And you can just flip around exactly the things that we did at first flip over the temptations to hear these commendations. So you should not be, we should not be, a people characterized by grumbling and complaining, but instead, flip that over, that's the first verse, go to the last verse of our section, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's what you should be. Instead of being the grumblers and complainers that we are naturally, that it would be Oh, so easy to be. Sometimes we make a virtue out of being a grumbling complainer. Instead, 
be glad and rejoice with me. Now listen, here's the reality. When the church looks at a crooked world, it is discouraging. When we consider our crooked selves, it is disheartening. And frankly, when we consider one another and we consider our church as a whole and we consider the crookedness and the people that are around us, maybe the crookedness that exists in our own family, we who didn't turn out the way we should, our marriage that didn't quite turn out the way we wanted it to, maybe our kids didn't turn out exactly the way we wanted it to, maybe the church didn't turn out exactly the way we wanted to, it is deflating. All of that crookedness takes the air out of us, it takes the wind out of our sails. Circumstances are always going to be difficult in a crooked world. You're always going to feel it. You're always going to feel the pressure that exists because it is a crooked world. That's true for us. It was true for the Philippians as well. They had been in the game, in the church game, for a long time. They had served, they had given generously for a long time. And now they find themselves with opponents in Philippi and they find themselves kind of getting tired with each other. They've been giving a lot of money over a lot of years to Paul, and now they find Paul being imprisoned. It's a crooked world. And in a crooked world, it just doesn't go the way that we would like it to go or the way the Philippians wanted it to go. But what Paul says to them is, listen, even if, verse 17, I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. This is a brutal image that Paul uses here from the Old Testament. Even if my blood is being poured out on your sacrifice, it's a metaphor that he's using here, right? But even if that were taking place, I will rejoice and be glad. Even if that is taking place, I'll rejoice and be glad instead of grumbling and fighting with each other, what we should do is fight for joy. It's easy to be sad. It's easy to grumble. There's no virtue in it. Fight for joy. Second commendation from Paul. If we would be an outpost of shalom in this world, then we must pursue, not being conformed, now just flip it over, we must pursue what he writes being blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Let that sink in for just a moment. You have a call to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. I don't think anyone has ever called me innocent. I don't even think my mother thought I was innocent like when I was born. I don't think I ever got those cute kind of comments, oh, he's so innocent. Instead, I think it was, he's bad to the bone. He's bad to the bone, and I can see that he's bad to the bone right away. In fact, I've told this story before, I think, uh, not because of like modern convictions that children should be born as naturally as possible and at home as possible and whatever else the modern things are with birth, but I happened to be born at home because she couldn't make it to the hospital in time. So they took me then to the hospital, and I was labeled Dirty Baby Huber. I couldn't be put in with the other children because right from the get-go, I was unclean. The label was put upon me. 
But the call here is to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the world. Now, when we hear that, I don't know how else we should hear that except as Christians bathed, enveloped in Christ, enveloped in Jesus Christ, who was indeed blameless and innocent without blemish, the Son of God. Because if that's not the case, we don't have any hope at this call that we've got here before us. So we've got to hear this bathed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've also got to hear it knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. The Holy Spirit is the one who's going to ultimately present us to God without blemish. He will be the one who purifies us and allows us to come before God in that great day. But then, having said that, having said this has to be bathed in the gospel, it has to be about the Holy Spirit at work within us, then we've got to hear that this is in fact a command to us. It is a subset of work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we've got to hear that. So covenant families, covenant children, churches and covenant with God and with each other must hear the consistency of this particular call that exists here throughout all of Scripture. It's on the front of your bulletin this morning. I put it there as well. Paul is not making up this term. He's not come up with an idea to say, let's call the Philippians to be blameless. He's simply echoing the call of Israel in the Old Testament, particularly the call that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 of your bulletin. When, when Abraham, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I might make my covenant with you. Be blameless. It is a call that exists from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture. It is a call to purity in the midst of an impure world. Nothing less. The third and last of the commendations that Paul gives here is if we're going to be an outpost of shalom, then we should be glad and rejoice. We should be blameless and innocent children of God. And third is also implied and said here, it will require of us that we hold fast, this is verse 16, hold fast to the word of life and then go back up to the verse right before it, and it will require us to shine as lights in the midst of this world. In the face of hostility against Christians, discouragement that can exist from living in a crooked world, the pressures to conformity that exist in a Christian world, God has never said to Christians, hold up. Get the walls up high, pull in the wagons, circle it up, retreat back. Instead, he says, you need to shine in that world. You need to shine in that world. Instead of giving up, hold and shine. You've got, you've got the word of God. You've got the word of life the promises of Jesus Christ. Hold them and shine in the midst of the world. In this, 
Paul has united the story of Philippians with, again, all of Scripture, with Jesus, who said it like this in the passage you're very familiar with. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So spoke the light of the world. God has been, how long has God been about the work of bringing light into the world? Where do you want to go in your Bible to start that story? Probably don't need to go more than like a verse, two verses in. Let it be light. Let there be light in this world. God is determined to do that, and he is determined to do it, not only physically, but through his church, through us, through the Philippians. And just to be clear that this is Israel's call as well, Paul's drawing this from passages in Isaiah and passages like the one that's on the front of your bulletin, Daniel chapter 12. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the day above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the call. That's the mission that belonged to the church in Philippi. Paul has no doubt. He has no doubt that in the day of Christ Jesus, joy and gladness and blamelessness and life and light, they are going to prevail. They are going to prevail because Jesus is going to prevail. And what he says to the Philippians is that that has been God's story from the beginning. That was Israel's mission. And you now, as the new covenant people of God, that is your mission as well. And it is nothing less than that. You're part of the story. But for now, we live in a crooked world. For now, this is the world in which we live. We've been rescued from a crooked world, but those elements still exist within us. The good news is this. Jesus came into a crooked world. This is the world that he entered into. It wasn't some fantasy world. It wasn't some everything's great kind of world. Jesus entered into a crooked world and lived as the light of the world in the midst of that darkness that characterized his day, that characterizes our day as well. And he's given us his spirit so that we plant with him into this world these exact same things. Joy and gladness, blamelessness and innocence, and that we plant into this world the light of the world. If we do so, we can be assured that our labor is not in vain. It is not in vain. It will seem like it's in vain. It will seem like there's no hope for the gospel to go out. It will seem like I'll never lead another person to the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. Do you know why? Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will accomplish all of his purposes. Therefore, your labor is not in vain. That's our mission brothers and sisters, to do exactly these things. Likewise, you also should rejoice with me. And Dave and Liz, not to put too much pressure on you, that's the mission of your home as well, to plant those things into your children, 
to labor hard to see your children full of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that kind of joy, that kind of blamelessness, and that kind of light shining into the world as well. May God bless you and your family in that, and may he bless us as we seek it as well. Jesus, you are the light of the world, and we acknowledge that without you, the call that is contained in this passage is utterly impossible for us because grumbling is easy and being innocent is not. For us, for you, it wasn't easy, but it was who you were, and we thank you for your victory. We pray then that as your church, you would help us to be dependent upon your spirit at work within us to produce this kind of fruit in our lives and then to expect with joy, with confidence, with assurance to see it completed at the last day. Lord, help us to be your people, to strive for these kind of things in the midst of a crooked world. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.